listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more information and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. Or if you're in the area, come visit us in person. I'm excited because today we are kicking off a brand new series here at Elam called The Story. And if you don't have your copy of these, uh, there is one outside in the foyer there. And I encourage you to pick one up. There's a whole pile of them. Um, and over the course of the next nine months, we're going to walk through all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, hitting on key events of the Bible. And in the midst of all of our scientific efforts to kind of dissect scripture, it's easy to forget that the Bible is actually one continuous narrative. It's one continuous story. It has characters. It has a unified plot, a single overarching theme. It has a hero, right? Jesus. And it has this evil villain. There's a conflict, a climax, a resolution. But as Brielle told us, the Bible isn't a myth. The Bible is fact. The Bible is true. As Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it in the Jesus Storybook Bible, she says, the Bible's an adventure story about a young hero who has come from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. I don't know about you, but my favorite part of the day as an elementary kid, and I wish we had it as adults too, was story time. You remember story time? Like you'd get out your little lunch carton, your little milk carton, they'd give you the milk carton, you'd open it up, and teachers would say, story time, we'd all gather around there. And uh, as, a, as a kid, um, this was stories like, you know, Little Critter, if you give a moose a muffin, Frog and Toad that I just read, the little engine that could, Mike Mulligan and his steam shovel. Anybody remember this one? Good one? And the funny thing is, all it takes is just hearing one line from those stories sometimes to bring you right back to your childhood, doesn't it? So let's play a little game. Let's see if you can remember what books these come from here. There's no place like home. Wizard of Oz. Would you eat them in a box? Would you eat them with a fox? Green eggs and ham. Please don't go. We'll eat you up. We love you so. Where the wild things are. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. The engine that could. How about a small smackerel of honey? Winnie the Pooh. It was a dark and stormy night. Anybody know this one? What did it say? A Wrinkle in Time. Classic. My personal favorite book is The Old Man in the Sea by Ernest Hemingway. It's simple. It's man versus nature. It's primal. I read it regularly. Also, I have a famous relative who's mentioned in the book. You can ask me about that afterwards. But the thing I love most about a story is that it has the ability to bring people together. A story is less threatening than, say, a lecture because you're a degree removed from the story. 
you're kind of watching it unfold at a distance, right? And you have to draw the connection from the story to yourself. And Jesus knew this. Jesus was a master storyteller. In Matthew 13, verses 34 through 35, says, All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundations of the world. See, Jesus said nothing to them without a parable. So storytelling was Jesus' primary means of teaching. And a parable, the parables of Jesus, it's, it's really just a story about earthly things designed to illustrate spiritual truths. The word parable, uh, it really means to, to hold two things up to one another and, and to compare them and to say this is like this. These earthly truths are like this heavenly truth. And Jesus leveraged the power of a good story all the time. There's something deeply human about storytelling. It satisfies some innate inward craving to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. I think this is true. One person says it like this. He says, perhaps the real reason we tell stories again and again is because as humans, we want to be part of a shared history. So why are we as a church doing this story? What's the reason for all of this? Well, part of our mission here at Elam, and you can read it right on the front of your bulletin, is to grow in Christ, right? This is our, our desire, one of our, our key mission points. We want to grow in Christ. But we're not talking about growth in just a general kind of generic sort of way. Whenever we talk about growth, it never happens apart from God's Word. So when we talk about growing in Christ, we're talking about growing in our knowledge and understanding of Scripture because Scripture, the Bible, actually helps us to know Jesus better. Psalm 1-3 talks about the person who trusts in God, who delights in the law of the Lord. And it says this, it says, He is like a, a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that He does, He prospers. So our hope, my hope and my prayer for you as we go through the story is that you would find yourself being enriched where you get the sense that you are like this tree planted by streams of living water whose roots are deep in God's Word, soaking in the nutrients, staying green in all seasons, and bearing fruit. And my prayer, and, and as an elder board, we've been praying about this too, is that God would continue to develop and create hunger in our hearts, a hunger to know God's Word better, to, to hide it in our hearts. The story is going to be a tool that helps us to be able to do that. Another advantage of the story is that the Bible can be intimidating. Can we just be honest about that? Like, for a minute, the Bible can be intimidating. It is a big book. God didn't give us a cliff notes. There are times when I wish He would have. Like, can you condense this thing a little bit, God? The Bible is a big book, and it can be really difficult to understand on your own, much less apply. Has anyone here ever tried a, a Bible reading plan? Like a one- or two-year Bible reading plan, however it is. Yeah, right? And you're go it's going great, right? You're going along, and it's wonderful. And Adam and Eve, cool. Noah and the flood, yeah, awesome. A Tower of Babel. And then you're on smack into a genealogy, right? Oh, so-and-so, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so who lived to the age 
of so-and-so, and you think, maybe I'll just go back to my John Grisham novels. Um, if you've ever read something in the Bible and thought, this is kind of boring, uh, I have good news for you. It's okay. You're not alone. I promise your church membership will not be affected by the fact that you don't know that it is Lamech who lived to 777 years old when he died. As Christians, we are not saved by biblical literacy, but by faith in Christ alone. Amen? So let's be crystal clear. God's love for you is not dependent on how well you know your Bible. You're not a better or worse Christian because you can quote more or less Scripture than the person in the pew next to you. Your status as a son or daughter of God is not defined by Bible memorization, but by your faith in Jesus. The Bible doesn't magically save you. Christ saves you. You might wonder, well, why is he hitting on that? Why is he hitting that so hard? Well, that actually needs to be said because it's an easy trap for us to fall into. In fact, when we turn to Scripture, we read about the Pharisees. This was the exact trap that they fell into, and Jesus had to call them out on it. So I'm reading here from, from John 5, verse 39. And it says this, this is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, he says, you search the Scriptures, he's rebuking them, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. See, they thought that in the Scriptures, like that that was how they could be saved by their knowledge of the Old Testament. But, but Jesus is saying, look, the reason the Scriptures are valuable is because they point to me, the Savior of the world. That's why they're so important. So let's put this another way because I think this is helpful. Say it like this, the Bible is not an object to be mastered, but the subject of a lifetime. The Bible is not an object to be mastered, but the subject of a lifetime. It's not something to be put under a microscope that we stand over and kind of pick apart and choose the parts that we want. The Bible is not an object at all that's under us. See, we are under God's Word. The whole situation is flipped. The Bible really is the microscope that's looking down on us and exposing us. It's something living. Scripture is living and active and, and exciting, and it molds and shapes us. So above all, it's a gift to be enjoyed, an adventure, actually, with exciting terrain to be explored. I think that's a helpful way to, to approach Scripture as we make our way through the story. So let's talk goals. What are our goals for the story as we make our way through it this year? Well, number one is increased biblical literacy, and, and I'm going to show you some stats on Bible reading here by the American Bible Society. You can jump ahead to the next one, Stan. Uh, many of us here grew up in an era when people were very familiar with their Bibles, right? You could mention characters like Jonah and David, and people like automatically, they've got some frame of reference, like, okay, I know Maybe they don't know everything about it, but they have, they have some starting point at least, a frame of reference for that. You had like a baseline level of biblical knowledge, right, that you could assume about most people you were going to run into on the street. Today, the culture has shifted, and that is no longer the case. We live in a post-Christian society, which doesn't mean that Christianity is no longer relevant by any means, but it does mean that we are long past the time when a Christian worldview could be assumed. So basically, we can't take it for granted that anyone has a Christian outlook anymore. 
Now, that's not doomsday talk. That's just the reality of the world that we live in. So, goal number one is really just to, to make the Bible less intimidating. So, when I mention people in places like Abraham and and Esther, and Ezekiel, and Jerusalem, and Babylon, and the Jordan River, you will have a better idea of, of what I'm talking about, where we're at. So that's goal number one, increased biblical literacy. Number two is a better understanding of how Genesis to Revelation is all about Jesus. That might sound a little bit trite, but, but here's what, what I mean uh, by that, I, I'm not just talking about the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which, as we'll learn, are the only actual books in the Bible where Jesus is living and breathing. But I, I'm talking about the rest of the New Testament as well as all of the Old Testament. Thousands of years before Jesus was born, every page and every story is all about Jesus. To quote Sally Lloyd-Jones again, she says, every word whispers His name, or every page whispers His name. Well, how do we know this to be true? How do we know that when we approach Scripture and we're trying to ask the question, well, well, how do I read this? How, how should I understand this best? How do we know what the answer to that is, to the answer to that question is? Well, Jesus Himself actually tells us precisely how we should use our Bibles in a number of places. So I'm going to read to you John 5, 46 through 47. Jesus says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? He's kind of saying like, if you don't have a, a Jesus lens when you approach Scripture, this thing is just a locked book. You're not going to be able to, to properly understand it. There is a key that unlocks our ability to, to understand and interpret and apply Scripture, and that key is Jesus Christ. See, way back in the Old Testament, Moses wrote about Jesus. So all of these stories in the Old Testament, we're going to discover this together, that all of these stories in the Old Testament that, that just seem like, it's just another story, kind of, good, but maybe isolated, we're, we're going to find that all those are a part of a much bigger, grander narrative, and they're ultimately about Jesus. So let's take one example. Let's look at Genesis 22, just very briefly, a flyover passage here. This is Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. It's also referred to as the binding of Isaac because Isaac is never actually officially sacrificed. But God commands Abraham, to take Isaac onto this mountain, Mount Moriah, remember this, and sacrifice your son. Ultimately, he doesn't have to do it because God provides uh, a ram caught in a thicket. So, uh, you can go to the next slide there, Stan. Now, when we think about the details of this story, you might think, well, that's a good story, and it is. But when we zoom in and double-click on certain things, we'll recognize, okay, this occurs elsewhere in Scripture. So we have Isaac the son of Abraham, carrying wood on his back. Where else in the New Testament does someone carry a piece of wood on their back? Jesus. We have Isaac and Abraham ascending this mountain, Mount Moriah, where death is supposed to ensue. Where else does someone climb a mountain, Mount Golgotha, 
to die for the sins of the world. Jesus, right? In the story of Abraham, there's a ram that gets caught in a thicket, and ultimately Isaac doesn't have to be sacrificed because God provides instead. Where else do we see someone dying for someone else to cover our sins? Jesus, substitutionary atonement. So that's, that's a, a glimpse of what I'm talking about when I say that all of Scripture is about Jesus. Well, let's transition here and, and let's ask this question. What are some pitfalls to avoid as we kick off the story? What are some kind of minds that we want to avoid as we approach this? Well, Old Testament scholar Chad Bird is really good on this, and he identifies three kind of problematic ways that we often tend to approach Scripture by default without even, even knowing it. And I want to bring these to your attention because I think they will help us keep the focus on Jesus. So pitfall number one, treating the Bible like a museum. Anybody here like museums? I do too. Museums are wonderful. A great place to learn about the past. You can glean a lot of information. They're intellectually stimulating. But the Bible isn't a museum. It's not a, a mausoleum full of dead artifacts from the past. People and places that happened long ago but have little relevance for us here today. Like we go there to glean facts, to stuff more information into our brains, but, but that's about it. So that's pitfall number one, treating the Bible like a museum. Number two, treating the Bible like a spiritual gym. This is from Chad Bird again, treating the Bible like a spiritual gym. Now, you think of a gym. A gym is somewhere where you go to train, to get stronger, to build muscle, and to get better. Now, this is the, the trap of moralism, to teach Scripture exclusively as a way of getting good behavior of making us all good little boys and girls who imitate the people that we see there. In other words, it's primarily about us. One massive problem with this approach, though, is as we've seen in our Broken Heroes series, is that every person in the Bible, except Jesus, was deeply flawed. So, I mean, I can say, like, I want my kid to be like Moses, but also, like, does that mean you want your kid to murder an Egyptian? Uh, you see what I'm saying here, right? So the second problem with this whole approach of treating the Bible like a spiritual gym is that it always ends up in either despair or pride. Either we're doing a good job at being good, so we become arrogant, or we're doing a bad job at being good, and we end up feeling crushed. That's the second pitfall to avoid. And the third one is treating the Bible like a desert with oases. He talks about this. He says, you know, sometimes it can seem like the only parts of, say, the Old Testament that, that really matter are, for example, the servant songs in Isaiah. These beautiful passages that prophesy and prefigure Jesus Christ. More clearly than even the New Testament, right? Wonderful, beautiful passage. Those are the oasis, but, but the rest of the, the, New, the Old Testament, it's kind of like a big desert, like you gotta, you got to hunt and you got to search, and it's not really functionally all that important. It doesn't matter all that much. That's the pitfall we need to avoid, and that we could really just do away with like 
90% of the Old Testament because it's just dry and old and dusty. But when we do this, we miss out on the many rich layers that all point to Jesus, again, which is the whole point of the story. He's the main character. It's his story. This we need to remember. It's his story. We find our stories within and under that broader umbrella. Our stories matter insofar as they intersect with his story. Right? This is God's story that he's telling. Does that make sense? All right, let's talk through a few uh, frequently asked questions about the story. Is the story supposed to replace my Bible? Answer, no. This hard copy of the story contains the big events of Scripture, but there's a lot in your Bible that's not covered in the story. So the, the story is supposed to be kind of an on-ramp, uh, right, to get you deeper into God's Word. So for convenience sake, as we go through this series Sunday after Sunday, you can bring this copy of the story if you want. It's all there. Everything you need is going to be there. Uh, but you can also use your Bibles if you want to as well. So let me show you this. Uh, does anybody have these, these peach-colored sheets here? If you got these, why don't you just hold them up so I can see? I just want to make sure we got those. If you didn't get one of these, there's a pile of them out in the foyer area, and you can see that this has our game plan for the series throughout the whole year, and right next to the story chapter, there's also scripture passages, right? So if you want to just say, hey, I'm going to use my Bible, and I'm going to read through these that way, great, that's awesome, go for it. So we can do it that way, or you can use the story. Either way is good. Both are totally fine. Uh, another question, why aren't there chapter and verse markings in the story? As you read through this, you'll discover that they're not there. Well, the interesting thing about chapter and verse markings is that they're actually a modern-day convention. In the original autographs of Scripture, there weren't actually any chapter and verse markings. Uh, actually, it was all in capital letters. There weren't even periods or paragraph breaks, or headings, man, I would not want to read something like that. That would just, I mean, it just sounds kind of brutal. Um, but chapter and verse markings, right, they can be a useful tool in our Bibles uh, for study purposes, but sometimes they can also be distracting too. Here's what I mean by that. You think of reading a novel versus reading a technical document like a contract, for example, where you have to pause every 10 seconds to, to look down at the footnote and, okay, I get this and I get this and, okay, this, this. That's one way to read and that's a good way to read, but also there's an advantage to being able to read just as a narrative from the beginning to end, the way Scripture was actually originally written. So, third question, what's my homework? This is what you all asked as you are walking into the doors this morning, right? What's my homework? This is why you're here. Uh, every week, you should plan on 20 to 25 minutes to read one chapter of the story. It reads pretty quick. So whatever chapter we're on, that's the chapter you should read ahead of time. So your homework for next week, then, is to read chapter one of the story. If you don't get to it in any given week, you're still going to be able to participate. You're still going to be able to benefit. But the more that you read ahead of time, the more that you're going to glean from the study. And final question is, how can I use this story in my family's devotional life? Well, every week as we make our way through the story, we're going to have prepared for you this weekly devotional. So if you, anybody have one of these yet, pull these out and, and hold them up high. These are family devotions. We want you to use these. So there's one for each and every day throughout the week. 
If you're like, this isn't going to work for my schedule, maybe we'll just do them all at once, awesome. Do it that way too. There's a lot of flexibility here. The main thing is this is going to provide us opportunities as a family to grow in God's Word together, and we'll be studying the same chapter. All these questions have to do with the same chapter that we're leading up to in any given week, right? So there's a a small reading, a question, discussion question, uh, and then a prayer there too. And to supplement that, we're going to be, the plan is to to put out a video, a midweek short video devotional that kind of gets you going and gets you ramped into the story chapter for that particular week. So as we wrap up this morning, or start to wrap up, here's a situation I want you to consider. If someone walked up to you on the street and asked you, hey, what's the Bible all about? Summarize the Bible for me. What's the plot line of Scripture? What is it? What might we say to them? Well, that's actually the third goal of the story as we make our way through this, is we want you to be able to give a clear, concise answer to this question in three distinct points. And here it is. The Bible, very simply, is the story of God's great love for us, how far we have gone from that love, and how far God was willing to go to get us back. Simple, clear, concise, right? Can you say that with me? The Bible is a story of God's great love for us, how far we have gone from that love, and how far God was willing to go to get us back. So first, it's the story of God's great love for us. Jeremiah 31.3 says, The Lord appeared to us in the past, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. That's a special kind of love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. God loves you. That's the default posture of His heart toward you and me. That's why He created us. You'll learn about that this week as you read through chapter 1. And God created us not because He needed us to do something for Him, but just because He loved us. You just stop and think about that for a second. What other relationship in your life do you have where someone loves you just because they love you? We'll catch glimpses and glimmers of that here in this life, right? But, but this is what God's love for us looks like, that God loves you unconditionally, that His love doesn't fluctuate based on your moral successes or failures, based on how good of a mother, father, employee, student, athlete you are. Do you believe that? Like, do you actually believe that? Story of God's great love for us. Story also of how far we have gone from that love. Romans 3, 9 through 11 says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin as it is written, None is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Who seeks for God? No one. No one. Not one. People will ask the question, what's wrong with our world today? You ever thought that before? What's wrong with the world? Why do people get old? Why do we die? Why do people get sick? Why is there country music? That's just me. 
all of these big questions, though, right, that we wrestle with here. Why does, why does murder happen? Why do I keep going bad, back to those old bad sinful habits? It, it's all because of sin. The Bible tells us that all are under the power of sin. Not some, not most, not just the really heinous people. All. We're all prone to wander and to get ourselves caught in the trap of sin. And sin, by the way, is not just an action. It's not just a conscious decision that we make to do the wrong thing when we should do the right thing. It's actually a condition of the human heart. We're born into it. Scripture calls this original sin. We're sinful by nature. It's why our motives are mixed, and it's why we always act out of self-interest. It's why our world and our hearts are broken, and we're all guilty of this sin, and we all deserve God's eternal wrath and condemnation because of it. The Bible is a story of how far we have gone from God's love, how much we've rebelled and continue to rebel against Him. But God always calls us back to repentance and faith because the Bible is also the story of how far God was willing to go to get you back, to get me back. John 3.16, you guys know this, say it with me. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. What did God do? He sent His one and only Son. See, the cross is the solution to the sin problem. Theologians call this the great exchange. And here's what it boils down to. At the cross, Jesus took all of our sins and brokenness and guilt and failings and He suffered the penalty we deserved dying in our place. He forgives us. And through faith, you receive that forgiveness. Well, here's the thing. Jesus goes one step further than forgiveness. He also imputes His perfect righteousness to you. And that means that when God looks at me, a Christian, a believing child of God, and if that is you here today, this is true of you too, He treats you just as if you'd never sinned. Isn't that astounding? He casts your sin as far as the east is from the west. Then He makes you a new creation with a new heavenly Father who refuses to treat you like your trespasses deserve. And then he does this thing where he begins to transform us, to, to change us, to make us whole again, to renew our hearts and our minds, to love other people freely rather than out of compulsion. So this week as you dive into chapter one of the story, my, my encouragement for you would really be just to, to repeat what I just said about the story, that this summary and to remember that, the Bible is the story of God's great love for us, how far we have gone from that love, and how far God was willing to go. Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's Word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. 
If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's Pastor K J O L H A U G at gmail.com. As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen.